0: Well, two years ago, we entered into our Disciple Driven Initiative. Uh, Pastor Dan and our elder board got together and uh, did some vision casting for discipleship uh, uh, for our ministry at Springbrook. And as a part of that vision casting, um, just building a discipleship culture was something that really surfaces a priority for us through this initiative. And, and so the, through the faithfulness of Disciple Driven, uh, we were able to enter into a coaching agreement um, with a gentleman named Bill Mowry, and Bill is our guest speaker this morning, uh, Bill is with uh, Navigators Church Ministry, and uh, Pastor Dan and I have been meeting with him. Uh, I meet with him for one week, and then Dan meets with him for one week, and then we get together, uh, the three of us uh, each week. And so for the, almost the last year, um, we've been in a coaching uh, arrangement with Bill, and um, I can tell you, it has been so enriching uh, just to be able to uh, to get to learn, to start to develop our culture, and I'm so grateful for Bill, and he's been more than our coach. I think today, I think he's just he feels like a good friend and so uh, I am really excited about um, our time together with Bill. Um, as a part of our Disciple Driven Initiative, um, we have formed what's called a Leadership Learning Team, an LLT. And our Leadership Learning Team, is uh, our LLT, is made up of our elders and some key uh, leaders in ministry. And so we have been meeting each month um, to talk about our discipleship pathway and to look at what does discipleship look like at Springbrook and uh, how do we help people as they... Are new to our church. How do we help them come in and get connected, and, and how do we help people grow? And so we have been uh, spending the last several months talking about our culture and um, our pathway. In fact, our, our leadership uh, learning teams is meeting today after this service. Um, we're going to get to spend some quality time with Bill and and start to flesh out um, some key milestones for our pathway. And so I'm excited about what God's doing in and through our ministry. Uh, And especially through our churches, we start to think about taking discipleship seriously and and developing a culture around that. And so it's been a blessing for me to get to to know Bill. I'm really looking forward to his teaching this morning. I know you're going to be blessed. Uh, But would you please take a moment to uh, welcome uh, Bill Mallory.
1: Thanks, Pastor Rich, and you know, it's been a real privilege the last year to get to know your pastors of Dan and Richard, and, and as he shared, we all of our communication has been by either Skype or Zoom technology, and so a lot of times I'll show up in the conference room and your big screen TV, and so I'm kind of bigger than life in the room, and I told them, well, when I land, I'm really only five foot two, and uh, you know... And so it's just kind of interesting to, you know, you develop these relations, how you can develop relationships through, uh, you know, media such as that. But then it's just even more enriching when you end up on the scene and get to greet people face to face. And and I've been praying for you as a church for the last year. and, And so it's just a thrill to be able to step in here, worship with you and kind of be engaged in your whole culture of what God is doing. And so thank you for inviting me in and and uh, thank you for having two great men like uh, Dan and Richard to be able to invest in. But I'm from Columbus, Ohio. That's the uh, home of uh, The Ohio State University. <clears throat> and, uh, well, you know, is any, do we have any Buckeyes out there? Do we have any Ohio State alumni? There's always Ohio State alumni somewhere. So, uh, but I appreciate the opportunity. And, and so before we get started this morning, you know, the, the theme is the idea of the great option or the great commission. And before you get started, let me tell a story uh, that kind of leads into this whole subject of this great commission of making disciples. And uh, about eight years ago, I was at uh, in our church assisting in the Iwana program and helping the kids review verses and so on. And, and somebody told me that I, I'd get, received a phone call. And uh, so I went to the church office, and the caller on the phone was my mother. Now, my mother had been ill, and and we'd been back and forth in communication. And and she says on the phone, she said, Bill, you need to come home. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is kind of it. And uh, so we gathered our kids together and my sister that lived in Columbus and her boys. We drove up to Sandusky, Ohio to the hospital there. And uh, my mother had been admitted. And talking with the physician that uh, he said, yeah, your mother's kind of the internal systems are shutting down. And she's got a little while that she's going to be conscious, and, uh, but she's going to be going into a coma soon. And uh, he said she wants to talk to the family. And as I talked to my mother, she said, Well, I, I want to say one last thing to all of my children and my grandchildren. And if you've ever been in one of those settings, you know that everybody's gathered in kind of that big waiting room, right? And so most of the nephews and their wives were there, and, of course, my, fam- my brothers and sisters And um, and so my mom called each one of us in, each of the children, each of her grandchildren in, one at a time. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself that, uh, you know, not only did my mother teach me how to live, but she's also teaching me how to die, how to die with dignity and with a sense of trusting in God. And and so that she had something to say to each one of us. And she passed away about two weeks later there in the hospital. And, And it was interesting, in the months to come... By observing different people's actions, you can begin to spot what maybe her last words were to them. In particular, my two of my nephews uh, married their live-in girlfriends. And I was at the wedding of my one nephew, and he said, you know, Grandma told me you need to marry that girl that you're living with. And he thought, well, if I don't marry her, she could come back and haunt me. And uh, But, you know, when we have these last words with people, and some of you who are parents, maybe you've had some... You know, some of your last words as you're sending a son or a daughter, they're being deployed in the military, or, or you've thought about I'm sending a son or a daughter off to college for the first time and or sending daughter to camp, you know, and this big event and, and or you've had a friend that's moving away and you think we've we've got this special conversation coming up and so you, you think carefully, don't you, about those words that you want to say. And that you wanna shape what's really important and you hope that the other person on the other end receives these words because you're taking the time to think about what are these last words that I want to share with somebody else? Well, we're going to look this morning at some of Jesus' last words. They're not the last words, but they're some of his last words. And I'd like to suggest that because they're some of these last words, that these words really have a kind of a poignancy and an urgency to them because they're some of the last instructions that he gave to his disciples and their instructions for us as well. And so we're going to look at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. it will show up on the screen here. And let me read it for us. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is what we call the Great Commission passage. And I'd like us to explore this morning that this really is a great commission and not the great option, that it's something I can opt out of. But no, this is to be embraced by you and I, and it reflects our obedience and our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's make some observations as we walk through this. First, it says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And so their first step was they obeyed. Jesus gave some instructions. I want you to meet at this mountain. And what happened? They all showed up. I've often thought the Great Commission starts with our showing up, doesn't it? They were obedient to the Lord, and they showed up. Now, when they showed up, what happened? It says that when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, I've often thought, what would that worship have looked like? You know, Peter probably didn't bring out his electric guitar. You know, they probably didn't take out an offering, right? You know, all the things that we think about worship wasn't there. Now, worship, the word kind of means paying homage to somebody, honoring someone, giving our affection, our allegiance to them. And I think I wonder if some of that worship was maybe some of the men bowed down. But, you know, Jesus was kind of a 30-year-old guy, and all of these other men were kind of maybe 30-year-old guys, and I kind of wonder if they might have gone up and grabbed him and hugged him and said, Lord, we're glad to be here. We want to worship you and honor you today. So when they showed up, what did they do? They worshiped him. And I think that's a principle here that the great commandment, which is what? To love God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds always proceeds the great commission. Because what happens if I reverse the order? Well, if I reverse the order, that sometimes the idea of making disciples then becomes a duty, becomes a task, becomes a responsibility that's maybe even drudgery. If it's not infused with the love of God, then if I'm not starting from the point of the great commandment, everything else falls away. People often ask me, well, Bill, what's one of the first things that you do in helping somebody get launched on a pathway of discipleship? You know, the first thing I usually do is I'll talk with the individual about how's it going in terms of your time with God? How's it going in spending time with God on a regular daily basis where well, you getting you've set aside time in the word and the prayer to meet with him? I'm always amazed when people talk to me about wanting God to use their life. But in the meantime, they're not committed to spending time with him. They're not committing to cultivate this great commandment of loving God in their lives. And I find a lot of times, particularly we live in a circus-like world today. There's lots of things going on in our lives, and we have time for a lot of different things, but sometimes that time with God gets squeezed out, doesn't it? You know, I'm taking a group of uh, men and women through the ways of the alongsider in, in my local church, and uh, of course, we talk about that in one of the first chapters about the great commandment of loving God and of spending time with Him. And so we're sharing about this the other night. How's it going in your time with God? And one of the men shared. He said, you know, all of my life I've just kind of struggled. And, and Tom's probably about 42. He's got four kids under 12. He's a public school teacher. His wife is an attorney. So he's living the three-ring circus life. And he says that I've always struggled in setting aside time with God. You know, but, you know, about a week and a half ago I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and I couldn't get back to sleep. And he said, you know, I thought, well, I'm awake. Uh, There's nothing good on TV to watch. I want to go and kind of spend some time with God. And he said it was such a refreshing time. He says, you know, for the last two weeks, I've gotten up at 4.30 every morning to spend time with God. I'm going to bed at 9.30 at night. My wife thinks I'm crazy. But, you know, I've just found this time with him has been so enriching that I don't want to miss it. Now, this is a bit of a, perhaps a little bit of an extreme example at 4.30 in the morning, not all of us may be able to do that or can do that. But the reality is, is that we make time for the things that are important to us, don't we? We make time for the things that are important to us. And so if I'm going to be engaged in this great commission of making disciples, I need to be involved in a great commandment of loving God. And a simple way of starting that and building that is by spending regular daily time with God. And so I'm meeting him and he's transforming my life. So when they showed up, what did they do? They showed up, you know, they worshipped him. They saw that the great commandment was needed to proceed, the great commission. Now, what else does it say in this passage? It says when they saw him, they worshipped him. But what else happened? But some doubted. Now, the passage doesn't tell us what their doubts were. Now, I think that we could assume that I don't know if their doubts would have been about his resurrection. Was he really there or not? Because they'd, have a, they'd had a number of times where they've met with him, and he had demonstrated his wounds and so on to them. And so I don't think they were questioning the resurrection of their Lord. I wonder if they were doubting, wondering about this, what he was going to ask them to do. Because all through the Gospels, Jesus has intimated, hinted at times, that he had this special mission for these men. In fact, he said that in Mark 3, he chose 12, and he appointed them that they'd be sent out to preach. So they had kind of an idea that he's going to ask us to do something. And I wonder if some of their doubts centered around their thinking of, can I do, can I follow through what my master is going to ask me to do? Because they've seen his example of obedience. So I'm wondering if they're beginning to doubt their own sense of obedience. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I kind of wonder, you know, does God really want to use my life? Have you thought about that? You know, can God use me to come alongside of somebody else and help them grow as a disciple? That We have these kind of doubts. But what happened with these 11? Even with those doubts, they did what? They showed up, didn't they? They showed up. And I think for you and I, it's saying, yeah, we have these doubts, and we're going to talk in a minute how God deals with those doubts. But the first step is we kind of need to show up and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am, and use me. I need to show up. So if we're going to be involved in the Great Commission, we need to show up. We need to show up to be obedient, to be worshipful, and to admit that at times we may have our doubts. Then what's Jesus go on to do? He gives them this command. He says that all authority, heaven and earth, has been given to me. Then he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now you can also translate that word go to where it says, as you go. And I like that idea of it because as you go communicates it in the context of my life, right where I live, where I play where I worship, where I work, I can make disciples. As you go, make disciples. So it's not necessarily a place that God is sending to me to, but it's right in the routines of life, in the here and the now, where I live, work, play, and worship, that I can go and make disciples. This last week I started a small uh, Bible reading group with two other young men that uh, from our church, and, and we're reading through 2 Timothy and uh, we came across the passage in 2 Timothy 2.2. You know, Paul says, What you've heard from me, and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. And one of the men brought up, each of these men have two children uh, each, and, and uh, one of the men brought up, you know, really thinking, my son's going to become a teenager next year, and what am I doing to mentor or disciple my son? And so we had a great discussion on what's it mean to disciple your children. What would that look like in some practical ways? So right there in his family, kind of right where he lives, he can begin to engage the great commission of helping disciple his son right there. You know, I have a neighbor. Let me tell a story about my neighbor, Rick. And uh, I'm discipling Rick, but he doesn't know it yet. Okay? And we moved into uh, this new neighborhood about four years ago. And uh, within the first half hour, literally, they haven't even unloaded the truck yet, uh, Rick comes over and proceeds to tell me how, what the, kind of the rules and regulations are in this neighborhood. And, uh, and I thought, you know, what's going on here? We're not even unloaded yet. And he's telling me how I need to act. I said, okay. I was kind of warned by this by uh, the previous homeowner. He said, you know, Rick was a former football and wrestling coach. He's kind of a direct guy, so be prepared for it. And I thought, okay, yeah, he's direct. And, and uh, then a couple months later, he calls me up and he says, uh, Bill, I noticed that you put something out in your yard, and some of our, our part of our property lines a little blurred. And he says, you know, you put it on my side of the yard, and he says, I'd like you to take it down. And I thought to myself, who is this guy? And uh, But then this verse comes to mind from a Hebrews where it says, you know, make it your aim to be at peace with all men. And I thought, Lord, I, I really want to resist this guy, but how can I go about serving my next-door neighbor, Rick? And so that changed my attitude, and I started thinking, how can we begin to serve Rick? And and ended up my wife kind of connected with his wife, and they got to be friends, and and Rick began to open up a little bit more about his life. And in fact, that following spring, you know, about six months later, he's describing how the previous homeowners had kind of done him in on a couple of things. And so he was expecting me to do that to him as well. And he says, you know, it's just so great having a neighbor like you who's not going to give me any BS. (laughs) And it helped me to realize, okay, now I see where Rick was coming from. Now, in the process, you know, as it is, you know, as guys, somebody asks, well, what's the first thing you usually ask somebody is, well, what do you do? And and, uh, and I said, well, you know, I work for a Christian organization called The Navigator. He says, oh man, I got to watch my language around you. And uh, and so, uh, you know, immediately identified myself as a religious guy. We invited him over for dinner. You know, a few you know, few months after that, after the relation got relationship got a little better. And I don't know about you, but when you invite neighbors over, you're not sure where they're coming from spiritually. You think, okay, do I pray? Do not I pray? You know. And we decided, okay, we're going to pray. Well, so we're all sitting down at the table, and Jack says. Hey, Rick says, excuse me, Rick says, hey, you're the religious guy. Why don't you pray for us? And so we've had all these real kind of faith conversations over the last three years. And, and several months ago, you know, Rick again said, how much I appreciate you guys as neighbors. And I said, well, you know, Rick, that uh, I believe that God sent me here just for you. His eyes got kind of big. And so he's brought this up in conversations a variety of times. So the other night we're sitting around this campfire and well no it's a bonfire campfire is little. we get this five foot high bonfire and um and he says tell me more about this job that you do and before he could get started he proceeds to tell me about his whole faith background kind of his god story and so i'm praying out of this relationship with rick that i'll continue to get more conversations and one of my goals is that i want to invite rick to read the bible with me just kind of you know go out for a cup of coffee and read the bible together and so that now I would say he's not embraced the Lord as a Savior, but, he, you know, God has put me in his life, and we're kind of moving along right where I live and where I work and where I play, and I want to invest in his life and his wife's life and to see where God's going to take us. And so, But it starts with this intentional focus that, on the one hand, I want to show up. Next, I need to be intentional that, as I go, we're to make disciples. And it can start with our neighbors, people we work with, or within our own families. Jesus goes on, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I'd like to suggest that in that phrase, making disciples, that in the disciples' mind, that they immediately have a sense of understanding because they could point to their experience with Jesus. And so they didn't, you know, think so much about what are all the techniques because they think, okay, this is what Jesus did with me, and I'm to do with others what he did with me. Now, how did Jesus invest in their lives? Well, he invested in a relationship. In Mark 3, it talks about how he chose the 12, and he invited them to be with him, to join him in life. And so that you and I then to, to make disciples are people who we need to be relational. We're intentional as you go, and then we're relational. We're inviting people, we're joining in our lives together to help one another be more like Christ, to be his disciples. Now, sometimes we confuse means and ends, and so that we do have discipleship programs, we have discipleship materials, but those are the means, and those means travel in a vehicle of relationships because that's how Jesus did it. One of the churches that I'm working with has, in their, you know, as they help communicate this idea of disciple making, they have this section kind of where they say, you know, this is where people hit the wall. And I said, what do you mean by that? I said, what we've discovered is that as people grow in their maturity in Christ, there's a point where they have to decide, am I going to invest my life in a relational way with somebody else? Sometimes that's scary. And there's a high commitment to doing that. But it's all about relationships. It's easy to walk through a program and to attend a class, but am I willing to invest relationally in people's lives because that's what Jesus did? And so that for you and I, sometimes it's costly to do that, that we make a choice to invest in people relationally to make disciples. Now, how can this happen again in kind of the circus-like life that we live in the 21st century? Well, let me describe the example of my wife and Peggy. And in our church, we have uh, mid-sized groups that we call adult Bible fellowships. And so we have a, a group of couples that have school aged children and you know, we've got a good group of folks that meet there. And so Peggy has recruited a small group out of this larger group of people, of women. And then what she's doing within that small group that, you know, she's trying to see, yeah, she can, one or two of those women a month, you know, just on a personal level. Talk about how's it going. She wants to invest in their lives in a personal way. And so that, that investment started by participating in kind of a regular event on a Sunday morning. But she's making a choice to do it relationally. And again, people ask, but uh, my life is so busy. How can you do that? You know, for several years, I took teams of uh, people to Bulgaria. And I had a friend of mine that was a navigator missionary in Bulgaria. In case you're wondering, how in the world did we get to Bulgaria? And so I take teams of men over. And we were helping churches and pastors think about disciple making. And so that uh, in one of the churches we were in, we had a panel discussion and people raised that question. One man, he says, my life is so busy, I can't spend any time meeting with people. So one of the men on the team that, you know, was a friend of mine, we had, Tom had trusted Christ through our ministry at Bowling Green State University back in the 70s with college students. And Tom had been an Air Force ROTC and went on and made a career in the Air Force and retired as a lieutenant colonel. And so that he's sharing with his man, he said, you know, I had to face a decision all the way through my career in the Air Force. You know, towards the end of my career, I was responsible for 70 people. I wanted to commit myself to be a faithful father, spend time with my children. I was also heavily involved with my church. I wanted to be faithful there. And I had to decide, when is my time that I can begin to invest in a few men to disciple some men? And he said, I decided that my morning breakfast were times where I can make myself available to spend time with some men. And so one or two breakfasts a week, he'd personally invest in one or two men, helping disciple them, helping them to be the person that God wants them to be. Now, he's busy. And we're all busy. But we do make choices for the things that are most important to us. And so Tom, in the midst of a very busy life, said, I can make some breakfast times available to invest in some people. And so he did that. And in our circus-like life that we live, that we can make those kind of choices, can't we? That we can choose to be intentional, and we're moving beyond just a program. We choose to be relational in the same way that Christ was. Now, Jesus goes on. He says, go and make disciples. And now when it says to make something, when we make something, there then should be some identifiable characteristics of what that thing is, right? Because if we're to make something and we don't know what we're going to make, then how do we know if we've made it? (laughs) Let me suggest a simple illustration that can give a picture for what a disciple is. Because then it gives us a sense of clarity of how can we then fulfill this great commission of making disciples. So, so then I have a picture of what a disciple is. So think of it this way. Think of a disciple as a picture as a wheel. OK, so you've got the rim. You've got the center. That's a hub. And you've got the spokes. And so the center of this wheel is Jesus Christ. Right. He needs to be the center of our lives. Now, you have a vertical spoke that runs up and down, and that represents our relationship with God, and that's how it's expressed in prayer and expressed in the Scriptures, right? So a disciple is somebody who has a prayer life and he's engaged in the Scriptures. Jesus says, you know, that uh, you know, if you continue my word, you're going to be my disciples. And then we have this horizontal spoke, and that's a spoke where we connect with people. So we connect with those, you know, that are in Christ – through fellowship and we connect with those who are outside of christ through witnessing and so we get this horizontal spoke that's connected to people and then you have the rim that kind of ties it all together and that rim is a rim of obedience in the christian life now as a wheel spins what do you see you see the hub right you don't see the individual spokes and so that hub is christ and so those spokes are again are a means to an end the me the end is knowing christ and so i look at it as When people become disciples, it's kind of like the wheel is rolling in their lives and their life is changing. They've got a vertical relationship with God that's established in the word and prayer. They've got a healthy, horizontal relationship with others and fellowship and witnessing. And then they're obedient. That kind of ties it all together. And so that's one way of picturing, you know, as I make disciples, here's an idea of what a disciple could look like is picture it as a wheel. And that means being purposeful, purposeful, that we have a target being a disciple, very purposeful. But then Jesus, he expands this. And this is kind of what the Lord always does. I, I think part of what I'm learning in my walk with God is that God wants to continue to expand my world. And a lot of times that world is expanded and his kingdom is expanded as I give my life to people. Because where does he say here? One is I'm, first he says, go, so as you go, and then we're to make disciples of all nations. Now, this is part of the command. It's of all nations. And so it's almost like there's an immediate target. That's the idea of being a disciple on the wheel. Then there's a secondary target beyond that of the nations. And now the nations here are not necessarily nations determined by political boundaries, but it's nations determined more by people groups, ethnicity, and so on. How do we do that? Let me give you an example of some friends of mine, Bob and Karen, uh, we actually met Bob and Karen when they were students at Ohio State and helped them to kind of grow as a disciple and passed on to them how they could begin making disciples. And, well, God's led them over the years. Bob is in middle management at Nationwide. You know, it's headquartered there in Columbus. And uh, Karen is a pharmacist. They have two daughters. and So, again, they're busy people. They've got busy lives. But they've embraced this idea of how do we make disciples of all nations and so they volunteered to be involved in a Ohio State to international students. Do you know who was one of the largest international student populations at Ohio State? It's students from mainland China. And so they're discipling some students from mainland China. About twice a month, they open their home up for a Bible study on Friday nights. And then they're kind of connecting with these students relationally and then beginning to spend selected time with some of them individually. And so they're discipling among the nations right there without leaving Columbus, Ohio. And it's not a huge time commitment. We're talking a couple of Friday nights a week and a breakfast maybe once or twice a month. But they're investing in the nations. And so as we think about being purposeful we're purposeful about a picture of a disciple, and then we're thinking about the nations, the people who are different from us behind us, and that Jesus wants to send us there. To me, that's pretty exciting because you think of your world expanding. Like a number of years ago, we were involved in ministering to medical students. And again, one of the medical students was a woman from mainland China. And her parents were in town visiting from China. Her father was a surgeon in the Chinese army. And her mother was a physics teacher. And we and, and and were having them over for a picnic. And neither of them speak any English. And so the daughter's interpreting to us. And I thought, isn't this wild? Here in our backyard, I'm having picnics with, you know, uh, mainland Chinese communists. (laughs) Who would have ever pictured that? And that's this adventure that God allows us to experience as we choose to go and make disciples. We just don't know where it's going to take us. But we need to be purposeful. We're purposeful about what a disciple looks like. And we're purposeful about thinking about the nations. Now, what happens next? Well, we're purposeful. And then we're empowered. And this is the exciting part. Because you go back at the beginning of verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And on the basis of my authority, you're to go. Now how does he end up this command? And he says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And I look at it, it's kind of like as you take this book, it's like Jesus is putting two bookends around this book. So the book represents the command to go and make disciples. One book is the is bookend of authority. The other book is, a, I mean, bookend is the bookend of, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. Now I've thought about this in scriptures. You know, I, I cannot find another command that's bookended by those two things, either by his authority or his presence. Doesn't mean they're not there. I haven't found it yet. And so, by the fact that he bookended this command of going and making disciples by authority. This presence, maybe that tells us something about how important this command is. Now, what's it mean for him to, for where to go on the basis of his authority? Because it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, what's that mean? Well, I used to be involved in taking uh, dental and work teams down to Honduras for short periods of time. And so one of the times I, with the team that we had from our local church, one of the men who went down was a policeman there in Columbus. And Tim and I ended up being roommates at the, Motel 4, um, you know, it's kind of a little step below <laughs> Motel 6. And uh, but uh, so we we were coming back from the work site one day and, and we got lost, kind of lost there in a the barrio and neither of us spoke any Spanish. And this is a tough spot. And and we're trying to figure out where our motel is. And all we could do is kind of show people our motel key and ask them, if, you know, they could read the Spanish name in the motel. If they could gesture us towards, you know, where this was. And And so, you know, I'm getting a little apprehensive and I said to Tim, so Tim, are you packing? You know, are you carrying your gun? And I did it, you know, jokingly and he said, no, I can't carry a gun in Honduras. Well, you know, he has authority to carry a gun in Columbus and he has authority to carry a gun in Ohio, has authority to carry a gun in the United States, but he doesn't have one to carry it in Honduras. Now, who has all authority? Jesus does, doesn't he? He has all authority. So whatever nation I go to, and and if we think of nation as also just people groups, people different than me, His authority extends to there. And so whether it's my workplace, whether it's my neighborhood, or whether it's my family, or whether it's another country, His authority extends to that. And that's good news for us, isn't it? You know, when I I used to, as I mentioned, going to Bulgaria, and so I've I've studied and gotten to know the Orthodox faith and Eastern Orthodoxy, and when you go to an Eastern Orthodox church... You look up and there's always this dome. And in that dome is this uh, kind of a, a fresco of Jesus. And it's representing him as a Lord of the universe and a ruler of the world. So every time you go into worship, you look up and yep, there's Jesus. Lord of the universe, ruler of the world. He has all authority. And we go on that basis. Now, what's the end one? The second book authority. He says, my promise is I'm going to be with you. Now, if you've entered, ever entered into a new location, a new situation, I don't know about you, but a lot of times you really feel alone, don't you, if you're by yourself? So my coming here this morning, it's kind of like I basically knew two people, you know, your pastors, Rich and Dan, but you know, they've left me for this worship service, and, and so I'm alone, <laughs> I'm right here, you know, and so there can be this feeling of aloneness, right? You're in a new situation, is there anybody else there? And Well, what's Jesus' promise? My spirit's with you. And so whatever you need at this moment in time, my Holy Spirit is with you. And so that he bookends this command with his authority and his presence. And I picture it's almost like Jesus is writing this blank check to us. And he says, whatever you need to go and make disciples, I'll provide that for you. Because sometimes it is scary, isn't it? We think, okay, I suppose people aren't interested. suppose people don't want this. suppose they don't like me. I don't know enough. Well, I'm going to show up, don't I? And when I show up and I'm obedient to that command, He promises His authority and His presence to go with me. Now let me close with a story to kind of illustrate this again. And it's a story of uh, Jim and Betty. And Jim and Betty live in a mobile home park. And a new neighbor moved across the street from Jim and Betty. And Jim was a pretty friendly guy. And so he had kind of walked across the street and got to know his neighbor and And over a couple of months, they had repeated conversations. And and Jim ended up actually sharing kind of some of his face story with this neighbor. And he also discovered some things about this new neighbor. One is that the neighbor was a widower. And two is that the neighbor had lung cancer. And so Jim and his wife, Betty, decided, how can we just serve this neighbor? And Jim would go over and do some odd jobs. Betty would take over meals for him. And in the process, they wanted to keep this Kind of faith journey, this conversation going, and so they invited their neighbor to, uh, you know, Jim had a home Bible study. They invited him to his Bible study, and he came once. And they invited him to church, and he came once. And I asked Jim, well, why do you think he only came one time? And he said, well, you know, with his cancer, he kind of coughs up stuff, and I think he just feels socially embarrassed to be around people. Well, this story has a, you know, a good happy ending to it over a period of time that. The neighbor comes to faith and Jim actually helps to baptize him in Christ. And, and now Jim and Betty were not retired, you know, ministers. Uh, Jim was actually a meat cutter all his life and Betty had worked in a school cafeteria, just kind of regular blue collar folks. They didn't do this because, you know, it had been Friendship Sunday at the church and we need to go and do this. And they didn't do it because they'd just been to an evangelism seminar. They, they walked across the street, served their neighbor, Started faith conversation because that's just kind of what disciples do, and if we're going to be involved in the Great Commission of going and making disciples, yeah, we just as we go, we're going to go and invest in people's lives. And so you could be asking me, well, how do you know all these details? Well, Jim and Betty were my parents. My parents' name were Bill and Daisy, and uh, my dad was a meat cutter all his life. My mom did work in the school cafeteria, and, and uh, by the way, uh, my parents did this when they were about 75 years old. And so we just keep doing it. You know, after my mother passed away, another dad story. About two weeks after my mom had passed away, another set of neighbors came and knocked on my dad's door. They'd been in this little Bible study with him for 20 years, really 20 years, and they said, "Bill, we want to be saved." And they knocked at the door. You know, and my dad was a little frustrated, and uh, you know, and he said, "Well, can you come back tomorrow?" And so they come back tomorrow. And uh, my dad had some of you have seen this old, you know, it's an old way of explaining the gospel called the Roman Road, and my dad took him through that. The neighbor, their neighbors come to Christ, and my dad at that time was 84. So you know the great, my commitment to the Great Commission is not the great option that stops when I retire. <laughs> and this is about a lifestyle, and it's embracing these last words of Jesus, not seeing this as an option. But it's a commitment that you and I make. And it's a commitment that starts with what? We show up, right? We just show up. You know, it could be that you need to volunteer to Pastors Dan or to Rich and say, you know, I'm going to show up. I'm to be involved in being a disciple and helping to disciple others. I'm going to show up. And then we need to choose to be intentional, right? Where we live, work, and play that we're going to make disciples. And then we're choosing to be relational, aren't we? This isn't about running a program. It's not taking people through a bunch of curriculum. That's part of it. That's simply the means. But that means travels in a vehicle of relationships. And so we need to be relational. And then we need to be purposeful. That We've got a picture of a disciple in mind. That's the first target. And the second target the nations. And then we need to be empowered. And that's the good news, isn't it? That Jesus is asking us to embrace his command. And then he gives us the resources and the ability to live it out. So how about you this morning? Are you treating the Great Commandment—I mean, excuse me—the Great Commission as an option, or are you embracing it as a way of life? Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for this time together this morning and reflecting on your words in this passage. You know, we thank you for the privilege that we have of partnering with you, and it really is a privilege. It's an adventure of seeing how you're going to use our lives and the lives of others. Father, help us to be men and women who just show up, that we choose to be obedient. And then we choose to be intentional, that in the context of all of life, we're committed to making disciples. And then, Father, that we do it in relational ways and and that we're purposeful, that we've got a picture in mind. And then, Lord, in some ways, help us to see how we can be involved in the nations. You know, right here, right in this area, how can we be involved with people who are different than ourselves? And, Lord, help us to rely upon your power. Help us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in new and fresh ways to deal with our our doubts, our pride, our feeling we don't have time. Help us, Father, to deal with those in light of the empowerment you want to provide. So, Lord, help us as a church and as an individual not to see this passage as a great option but as a great commission that we need to embrace. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.